to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I am your host, Sarah Dong. I am a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow living in Boston. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and console questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. I'll present pieces of the story of a patient's case, and we'll pause along the way to hear from our guest. Like usual, all presented patients on this podcast are inspired by patient experiences, but cases are constructed or significantly altered and de-identified for learning purposes. I am very excited to welcome and introduce our guest for today's episode, Dr. Thara Vijayan. She is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UCLA in California. She currently serves as the Medical Director for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program and also carries several other roles within the School of Medicine, including Associate Director of Scientific Foundations of Medicine, Director of the Health Equity Pathway for the Internal Medicine Residency, and Director of the Medical Education Pathway for the Multicampus Fellowship in ID at UCLA. Her passions are health equity, implementation science, and combating the global threat of antimicrobial resistance. Outside of work, she loves doing puzzles, reading, and hiking with her two wildlings, her husband, and her 10-year-old hound. All right, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, As everyone's favorite cultured podcast, uh, I like to start by asking you to share a little piece of culture or something that brings you happiness or joy. Yeah, happy to do that. Um, Well, um, there are two things that I can think of, if that's okay. Um, But um, one thing that I love doing is reading to my children, um, or I should say reading with my children, uh, who are seven and four. And more recently, we started to read the sort of children's version of Trevor Noah's Born a Crime. And I say sort of because I definitely have to censor it a little bit as I'm reading it. (laughs) But it's brought us tremendous joy. Um, You know, even though they're so young, they definitely get a lot out of it. And, um, you know, it's sort of nice to be able to teach them something about the world outside of our little world here. So that's been really fun. And he's such a great writer and speaker, as you know. Um, And then the other thing, um, you know, uh, my sort of veg out time after I put them down to bed um, is uh, watching Schitt's Creek, um, which is, (laughs) it is, I'm actually like, I started watching, watching it the whole season for the second time. (laughs) It just brings me so much joy. Um, And part of part of the problem is that I also wind up, you know, I wind up falling asleep within 10 minutes, even though it's such a great show, because I'm so exhausted at the end of the day. But but Moira Rose is like my hero. I I so want to be her and adopt her vocabulary someday. So (laughs) yeah, I I started watching it late. And then like everything else on Netflix ended up just binging a ton of it. Totally. Um, which I guess can demonstrate that I'm a re- on a research year because I had the ability to do that. I would, um. you know, I would binge watch things <laughs> when I was post-call all the time. Like I had yeah. so much energy at some point. And now I don't, I think it, I've just exhausted everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's taken, it's taken about like 15 years, but yeah. <laughs> so just so you know. Well, that's good. I love having more than one recommendation. That's excellent. Um, And so we have a consult today. And 
I it, it ends up having multiple questions, but I'm going to start with the first question is GPCs and blood cultures, which we get that call all the time. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about this patient. He is a 50-year-old male, has a history of a type A aortic dissection involving his ascending aorta, arch, and a portion of the descending thoracic aorta. And so 10 years ago, he had a repair with a Bental procedure. So for those who might not know this surgery, I thought it would be helpful to just explain. It is a procedure essentially to replace part of the aorta and the aortic valve, typically in the setting of something like aneurysm. And so the the ascending aorta and valve are excised, replaced with vascular prosthetic aortic graft, and then the aortic valve is replaced. And my understanding is that usually the coronary arteries are sort of re-implanted on the graft. He does still have some sort of distal aortic dissection that is under annual surveillance with vascular surgery, and he checks in with them, and all of that has been stable. He has some peripheral vascular disease and claudication symptoms, but had a common iliac artery stent five years ago. And then he had an ATV accident many years ago and had a surgical fixation of his left forearm. And so he actually came to the hospital because he's had five days of acute onset back pain. And he says it really just like radiates all over his torso. It's in his abdomen. It's sort of hidden in his suprapubic uh, groin area, almost like has pain into his testicular area. That's kind of how he describes it. He has no fevers and he doesn't have pain elsewhere. He doesn't really have chest pain. He doesn't have pain in any of his extremities. He doesn't have any weakness. And then nothing else that he brought up like uh, cough, shortness of breath, rash, nothing else. It's just this really awful sort of back abdominal uh, groin pain. And so the first thought that everyone had is that this is worsening dissection that we've kind of known that he had. So he's admitted to the ICU with the plan for sort of aggressive blood pressure control and medical management. On his physical exam, for his vitals, he's afebrile. His blood pressure is right now 100s over 50s. Um, He's not tachycardic. His heart rate's in the 90s. um, But he is requiring about 10 liters of O2 and is satting about 92%. And so he he does appear pretty uncomfortable and has some respiratory distress. Um, but for the rest of his exam, it's sort of difficult to hear heart sounds. Um, and he's tachypnic and short of breath, and he's on an oximizer. He has diffuse abdominal tenderness, but he doesn't have rebound, doesn't have guarding. We mentioned this left wrist that um, had well-healed scarring from a prior surgery, but that looks normal. It doesn't look um, inflamed. And we have the labs that he had from when he walked in the door in the emergency room, which showed that his white count was 11, his hemoglobin was 10, uh, hematocrit 30, and platelets of 162. He has a normal chemistry, normal LFTs. His UA is negative. And so he does um, pretty emergently go for CT torso. That actually shows that his dissection looks stable. And there's no comment on additional inflammation or stranding near his aortic valve repair or his vascular graft. There is a comment about soft tissue stranding along the common, the right common iliac artery, which is where his stent was from a couple years ago. 
bedside surface transthoracic echo that, like most TTEs, said it's suboptimal, but essentially showed preserved function and nothing acutely changed. And so, like I mentioned before, he has blood cultures that have four out of four bottles for GPCs with pairs and clusters. So he's put on empiric vank and NAF. The ICU calls you and just says, what are you thinking? What are these GPCs? Um, but I think their other big question is, how how do we think about his graph material and his valve in this setting? And, and uh, what should we do next? Yeah, wow. Really great case. Um, do you mind if I ask some questions, actually? Or? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so his hypoxia, in any, what is it, anything in his lungs that they found on the CT imaging? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he does have some pulmonary edema, mm-hmm. nothing that looks like a focal pneumonia. Well, I'm glad you pointed out that I didn't mention that. Yeah, just sort of thinking if there were any sort of stigmata of septic emboli yet. It sounds like certainly on his other, the rest of his exam, no, no particular stigmata um, at the moment. But really, really tough. I mean, he really so, you know, his I guess to go back, um, his chief complaint was back pain and, you know, absolutely dissection given his history. And I and I will say he's pretty young to have a dissection. I don't know if he has sort of underlying collagen vascular disease or anything like that, but um, or if he's like a, um, you know, a lifelong smoker, but but fairly young. So, you know, certainly uh, that's absolutely what I would have thought of right away, given his very complicated history. I do think, um, you know, uh, you know, other common things being common. So the question at this point, so when you say four out of four blood cultures, I'm assuming you mean four sets. So they actually managed to get four different sets or four bottles? Four bottles. So two sets of Arabic anaerobic. Right. So this yeah. is something that I think we we often, just to sort of... Um, just sidetrack a little bit. I think that yeah, uh, yeah. we we often um, get this this question from um, house staff and fellows about you know bottles versus sets. Um, is there a significance? And actually, one of my uh, one of our residents had asked our lab if they could actually start reporting the bottles. And so the lab brought it back to me as you know the um, director of stewardship and asked me what I thought about that. And honestly, when we're talking about um, you know high grade bacteremia, we're really talking about bacteremia that's separated in space and time. Um, so in general, that means um, a set is of more value than individual bottles. You know, so um, because you're, when you get two sets, even though they're relatively close together in time, they still are actually two different sticks. So two different places, two different, you know, yeah. separated in two different time points, um, even if by very little. Um, and it's really helpful to in in these cases to even get a third set. Um, certainly, I think the, the patient needs to be started on antibiotics. Um, he sounds pretty sick. Um, but... If we can get that third set to, again, just sort of quantify a little bit how high grade this bacteremia is, um, I think that would be helpful. So sort of putting that out there as as one part of this. And then um, he certainly is somebody that's at risk for both coagulase negative staph infections because he has prosthetic material um, and that, you know, uh, including staph epi, um, as well as staph aureus. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, the, the first thing that they did absolutely was start him on antibiotics and vancomycin um, is reasonable given that we don't really know what kind of staff it is yet. Um, but then the question is what next in terms of imaging? 
And I think I would at least start with a with some kind of back imaging because you can get an MRI fairly quickly um, and just make sure that there's no focal abscess, epidural abscess, or vertebral osteomyelitis. Um, but then, you know, the graft is sort of, you know, the elephant in the room, mm-hmm. so to speak. And so usually the sequence of steps is uh, often you go with a TEE first, depending on, again, how sustained this, with the type of bacteremia, how sustained it is um, to look at the valves first, you know, certainly his aortic valve, which is also prosthetic material could be infected. And then you may think a little bit about nuclear medicine imaging if that's negative. You know, the choice of nuclear medicine. So, you know, it's hard to know exactly what type without consulting your nuclear medicine radiologist, I will say. So I always, it's not like become best friends with your radiologist, especially your nuclear medicine radiologist. A lot of times our choices are limited by what's available immediately. PET CTs are probably the most sensitive and specific for endovascular infections, although I have seen patients, um, you know, who had endovascular infections who hadn't gotten it picked up on a PET CT. But oftentimes, a tagged white blood cell scan is more readily available. And, the down, you know, it's the downside of the tag scan is that it's sort of like looking from an airplane at your body. That's the way <laughs> I would sort of describe it. It's very much this sort of top-down view um, with not great resolution. And if you have a relatively low-grade infection, it's probably not going to pick it up. But if it's a big enough infection, there's a, you know, there, there's a good chance. I mean, we've certainly had infections, endovascular infections picked up by tag scans. So it's not, it's, you know, if, if that's what you have, that's what you should try to get as long, you know, if everything else is negative. And you have a hard time getting more history because of his shortness of breath. Um, but he is able to confirm some of the symptoms you discussed earlier. And you are able to sneak in and ask uh, a lot of the typical questions we think about with staph bacteremia. Um, (laughs) I think you can think of it as where did it come from and where did it go? Thinking about areas of entry and hardware. And hopefully that doesn't give you an earworm with the Cotton Eye Joe song. Um, But no recent illnesses, hospitalizations. He's had no skin soft tissue infections, abscesses, um, skin breaks or scrapes no recent dental work, and really no additional hardware other than what we've talked about so far. Um, We know he has no allergies. And for social history, he lives with his wife and two children in the Midwest. He works in construction. He has three dogs at home, David, Lexi, and Stevie. And so it turns out that these blood cultures are initially identified as coagulase negative staph. And so the team calls you and says, well, Maybe these are just contaminants, right? Because coag-negative staph is usually a contaminant. Um, And so I thought that was a great topic, just thinking about what are really contaminants and what should make you suspicious of when coag-negative staph may need to stand out in certain clinical presentations. So how would you teach residents or fellows um, about approaching this patient with coagulase-negative staph? Yeah, and it's it's a great question. I think I think the first step in your sort of triage process is um, one ascertaining how many blood cultures are positive, right? So you yeah. hear you have two out of two here. You know, while it is true that coag negative staph doesn't often cause 
native valve infection, for example, or endovascular infections that are without any prosthetic material, it, it is possible. Um, and I will say probably um, possible with staph epi, which is one of the more common coag negative staph um, that we have. Um, but then also there's, you know, staph lugdunensis, which certainly can mimic staph aureus in all respects. Um, it can cause abscesses. It can cause serious endovascular infections. It is also just like staph epi is, just like staph aureus is, it's actually a colonizer of the skin and the perineum. And, you know, um, it can definitely cause serious disease. So, you know, part of your sort of decision-making process will be based on how many blood cultures are positive. The second piece of this, I would say is, you know, what is, what kind of other risk factors does the patient have? And just the fact that the patient has both an aortic graft and a, and a, an aortic valve makes him at risk for any number of coag negative staph serious infections, whether it's staph epi or staph lugdunensis. So I definitely would take it seriously in this point. I, I would tell you, I'll tell you, I recently had a patient who um, had a carini bacter, bacteremia, <laughs> Um, and ha has a HD cath, right? So he, he's a dialysis yeah. patient. Um, and so a lot of effort was made in the very beginning to call this a contaminant um, in the sense that like, you know, I mean, the, the team did the appropriate thing and repeated the blood cultures because it very well could have been a contaminant. But once you start seeing a couple of cultures pop up, you start to, you know, and especially if it's from the line and if there's direct time to positivity, I mean, those are sort of other things that you can use um, to determine if something's a contaminant or not. Um, you, you have to take it somewhat seriously, you know. Um, some Sometimes people will check the sensitivities to see if the sensitivities are different or if it's a different morphotype. That's something we, we would do sometimes as fellows for staph epi. Um, but at the end of the day, if there are enough risk factors, I would absolutely take it seriously. Yeah. Um, and so we are able to get a TEE transesophageal echo that shows that the aortic valve prosthesis is well seated. There isn't any obvious vegetation or changes that were concerning uh, for endocarditis. Um, because of the initial start with back pain, uh, I agree, it made sense that we'd love to get an MRI of his back, but because of his respiratory status, it, he wasn't really in the place to go get imaging. So we weren't able to do that right away. But we find out that the organism is Staph lugdunensis. And you kind of mentioned, I think Mr. Lugdunensis is probably the most boss slash fearsome of the coag negative staph, like you mentioned, because it behaves very similarly to staph aureus, and that's a good way to remember it. Is there anything else that you think are good pearls for lugdunensis? I It's helpful you mentioned that it is a colonizer of the skin, um, but anything else that you think might be interesting for everyone to know? Yeah, I, I would love getting, I mean, I wouldn't love getting, uh, you know, always sad for the patient to get lugdunensis bacteremia, yeah. <laughs> I should say. But like lugdunensis is just an amazing, staph lugdunensis is an amazing bug. And one of the things that I was always blown away by is how often it's sensitive to things like penicillin. So it doesn't even produce a beta lactamase, right? So when you're yeah. thinking about staph species, I mean, staph aureus has been producing beta lactamase, you know, well before the discovery of penicillin. Right. It, it didn't need penicillin to make beta lactamase. It figured it out on its own. And then once penicillin came into play, it was like, oh, this is what it's used for. <laughs> um, and but staph lugdunensis actually has ma managed to actually um, at least, you know, a good 
good number of uh, staphylococcus isolates, I would say, in, in the U.S., I think about 50% or so um, have been, you know, um, thought to be penicillin sensitive. So pretty rare. So that makes it pretty unique and pretty yeah. cool. You know, apart from that, I mean, really does behave so much like staph aureus in terms of causing abscesses and causing endovascular infections. So I would say that those two things make it pretty cool and unique. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting, a couple days pass. And unfortunately, the blood cultures have not cleared, they've been persistently positive. And now we're creeping into four days and five days, and he still remains bacteremic. Clinically, he's doing about the same. Um, so you know, you have this negative TEE, but he's persistently bacteremic. I I'm curious what you think about here. Are you still concerned about endovascular infection? Um, should we sort of revisit that conversation about advanced or nuclear imaging? Or um, are there other things sort of in your thought process now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at this point, you're really worried about source control, right? Um, that's that's always, it's, it's not always the antibiotic, it's often the source. Um, and so the reason to pursue nuclear imaging at this point is really to determine for your CT surgery colleagues um, whether the valve or the graft or both are infected. Um, and then if they are, then to seriously consider actually removing them if it's not going to be too much of too morbid of a procedure. Um, and that's always something that we're weighing, right? I mean, depending on the age and the um, and the frailty of a patient, um, how you know, how easy is it to remove these kinds of very, you know, embedded material. So I, I would absolutely at this point, if possible, try a PET-CT. PET-CTs are, um, you know, um, as, as you know, they basically, um, the way they operate is by um, fluorodeoxyglucose um, and um, the glucose, glucose metabolism by infections is what we're actually looking for. Um, and so, and, be, and because they're often paired with CTs, you get this really, really nice resolution. Ideally, um, if you can get that, that would be great. But a lot of times insurance companies won't pay for it. And that's been our, the bane of our existence. Um, so, you know, in that or, or there are limitations just in terms of um, being able to, you know, access it within the hospital and things like that. So if that's not possible, then I think a tag scan and maybe trying to pair the tag scan with a, another high resolution type of imaging like a spec CT or, um, you know, some kind of um, some kind of thing to try to narrow in on the on the infection would be uh, ideal. So I'm going to accelerate his course a little bit. Um, his respiratory status that had made traveling difficult previously has improved and there had been a lot of ongoing discussions, and ultimately the decision was that he would be able to get a PET scan, and we did have some availability. And so he goes in for a PET scan, which demonstrates increased FDG avidity in the proximal aorta between the medial border of the ascending aorta on the right wall of the main pulmonary artery in the region of apparent sutures. And so it looks like we had an area of graft infection there. Interestingly, he also has some increased FDG avidity along the proximal portion of his right common iliac stent, which was concerning for infection. And then he does have some avidity and stranding of tissues um, surrounding his sacrum and coccyx. There wasn't clear disc 
discitis or osteomyelitis, but there did seem to be some signal in his lower spine. And so now we have this patient that has had high-grade staphylogenensis bacteremia with a PET scan that has identified our likely sources near his bental graft, potentially near this uh, peripheral arterial stent, and then in his spine as well. He does have evaluation by surgical teams that determined that there really isn't anything that's drainable and no areas that they could really intervene upon at this point. Um, And fortunately, he clears his cultures around this time, but it's taken almost a week. So I wanted to take a step back and think about his susceptibilities because they were a little bit unusual and we hadn't talked about them. So his organism actually was resistant to penicillin and otherwise was susceptible. So clindamycin, erythromycin, gentamicin, moxifloxacin, oxacillin, tetracycline, vanc, and levofloxacin. Um, But I wanted to point out that his oxacillin MIC was 2 and his vanc MIC was less than 0.5. And so I'm just curious if you would have any hesitations with using oxacillin versus vancomycin, whether or not that's related to his susceptibilities or thinking about transitioning to the OPAT setting. And did he clear on oxacillin? He cleared on both. Um, shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make it hard. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a really tough question. I mean, I, you know, it's not the same as um, as Staph aureus, right? Staph aureus, you think of too as being sort of suspicious for MIC creep. So you do worry, worry a little bit about either hetero resistance or any number of things. Um, I, I think with Lugdenensis, um, similar to Epi, you know, um, we feel like if the CLSI criteria say it's two and it's susceptible, then it should be fine. Mm. Um, you know, beta-lactams anyway function as time above MIC, not, you know, not um, concentration above MIC, Cmax over MIC or AUC over MIC, which would, uh, you know, take into account both. So, so, so sort of taking that into account in theory, um, you know, if you do continuous infusion oxacillin, it should be okay. Um now, you know, uh, probably couldn't get the the other things that may help if you kept the graft in like rifampin and things like that, because he was still bacteremic. And we like to wait until somebody's not bacteremic before starting some of those things, because you can develop resistance, or you can select for resistance rather. rather. So I think that, um, you know, there are certainly those things to, to take into account as well. I learned a lot about staphylogenensis antibiotic susceptibilities thinking about this episode and this case, and I just wanted to make sure we highlighted a couple things. Um, we have mentioned a few times so far that staphylogenensis can cause serious and severe disease similar to staph aureus, but it is specifically known for being susceptible to most antibiotics and that beta-lactam resistance is relatively uncommon. And so this is in contrast to other coagulase-negative staph like staph epidermidis. And so our example patient here had a penicillin-resistant isolate, um, but I think it is important to point out that penicillin resistance is uncommon in staphylogenensis. It might be increasing overall, but in the U.S., it seems that about half of isolates are still penicillin susceptible. 
Now, oxicillin or methicillin resistance is a huge, complicated topic that I know I am not the best qualified person to talk about, but I wanted to summarize a few keys with staphylogenensis. And so resistance to oxicillin and most beta-lactame antibiotics is conferred by the MEK-A gene. And MEK-A and staphylogenensis isolates is uncommon and probably as low as sort of single digits percentages, like 3%, 5%. There are some exceptions, and I'll put some links to that in the consult notes. Um, But coagulase negative staph isolates that harbor MEK-A have oxicillin MICs in the 0.5 to 2 range which is much lower than the oxicillin MIC you would see in a MEK-A positive isolate of Staphylogenensis or Staph aureus. And so if you open your M100 and look at it, the CLSI oxicillin breakpoint for Staphylogenensis um, reflects this. So the CLSI recommends that Staphylogenensis MICs are interpreted using Staph aureus oxicillin and cefoxidin breakpoints rather than those that are used by the other coagulase negative staph. So a staphylogenensis isolate with an oxicillin MIC of two or less are susceptible. And then another coagulase negative staph would have a breakpoint for oxicillin of 0.25 or less for susceptible. Um, there are other resistance mechanisms that are also quite rare, like MEC-C, um, but I will put links to papers on these topics from folks who are much smarter than I am in the consult notes. Um, I will also point out that there was a recent episode of the ASM podcast, Editors in Conversation, that uh, talked about this topic sort of more globally and uh, susceptibility testing for staff other than staff Arius or SOSA, which I have not become cool enough to start saying over coagulase negative staff. Um, but really, it just highlights a place that you would be working with your microbiology colleagues. But I thought that those sort of micro pearls would be um, nice to know for staphylogenensis. A hundred percent. All right. So I think the next sort of big question is, you know, he starts to improve. There's no surgical intervention at this time. He's cleared his cultures. Um, you kind of mentioned just thinking about rifampin. I'm curious if, you know, we know that this patient is going to have a prolonged course of antibiotics. Um, Certainly, I think that for most people, that's going to end up being about six weeks, sort of calling endovascular infection, presumed endocarditis. And I'm wondering for this patient, because we established the diagnosis with PET, how do you feel about repeat imaging? Does he need it? Is that helpful to you down the road when you want to stop therapy. That's kind of part one. But I think part two is, would you stop completely or would you think about suppression in this patient? Yeah, it's so tough. And tell me, so surgery was not not considered because... He had stabilized and the the concern was that the surgery would be too risky at the time. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's so young, you know, to commit him to lifelong antibiotics is really, really hard. This, This comes up so much. But um, and actually, this very question, believe it or not, I was emailed about <laughs> in the last 48 hours um, about a staff epi. Yes, it's a yeah. common ID question. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the, the nuclear medicine testing is, um, is still limited, right, uh, in its, both its sensitivity and specificity. I mean, PET-CTs definitely have a much higher sensitivity and specificity. But if you get, you know, if you're sort of down to the last few 
little, you know, gram positive coxine clusters on that yeah. graft, it's not going to pick it up. Um, and yeah. so, you know, given how sustained this was, given the high degree, he also had, I mean, you know, he has the, um, um, the fixation in his wrist. I mean, this guy has, it's not just the graft and the aortic yeah. valve and, and the iliac stem. <laughs> it yeah. now is also the, um, the fixation. I don't, I think that there's a very high chance of failure if we took him off of antibiotics. Um, so, you know, the rifampin in a lot of ways is meant to facilitate c- complete clearance. You know, it's really meant to eradicate those biofilms, but that's in the setting of early infection. And this guy walked in with staph aurea- uh, staph lugdunensis rather. So you don't know how long he's been walking around, yeah. <laughs> right? He was yeah. walking around in the, in the community. So there, I think the biofilm is maybe a lost cause. Like it, it's there. It's not going to go away. And I mm-hmm. think you're going to be stuck with lifelong suppression. Yeah. And it's hard because it, you know, that the sim- initial symptom was predominantly abdominal pain. And, you know, maybe it was a mixture of some of the areas that we saw on the spine and this it would be unusual to sort of have symptoms from inflammation around that iliac stent, which also those do not commonly get infected. Um, so yeah, I think that's what's the hardest part is looking at the patients globally and deciding like, it's more than just one thing. It, it's all of these little things put together and sort of balancing that risk risk benefit. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think the other thing that sometimes we try to use sometimes more successfully than others is something like CRP to see if it's coming down. But I certainly don't feel like we always have that opportunity. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think CRP is a really good measure. It is actually important to follow um, with, you know, not, not so frequently, I would say at most every two weeks, probably every month um, in in the beginning. Um, And then what sort of watch it come down to, uh, you know, less than 0.3 or whatever the cutoff is in the lab. Um, but, um, but thereafter, it's not going to tell you about those sort of, you know, those biofilms that are there that you're keeping suppressed with your antibiotics. And you won't know that until you take patients off. Um, I will tell you, we, we have, we had an example of a patient who actually had a negative PET CT, um, with a staph epi, but had a, you know, had some different, a PDA closure and a couple of different things. Um, and, and we decided to, take the patient off and then actually decided to get surveillance blood cultures just to make sure because we weren't 100% sure. It seemed like such a strange, I mean, first of all, staph epi. So when you think staph epi, it's, yeah. <laughs> there's something, it's something, it's attached to something that's foreign usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and then sure enough, it came back actually. Um, so I had to make a, a very sad phone call. Yeah. Um, so, you know, really, these are all the things that we weigh and you don't want this person to come back to the hospital and have another prolonged hospitalization, all those things really take a toll on people's bodies and, you know, and their emotional state. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned surveillance cultures. I feel like that's another tool that sometimes we have to use, especially if the patient, you know, let's say you talk to a patient about a case that is really borderline and you're not sure what's the right choice. Surveillance cultures, I feel like are at least a bridge to try to try and look. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm glad we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If you know, it's worth giving patients a shot if you if you you know if enough things fit. Yeah. Um, but if enough if enough things fit in the other direction, yeah, <laughs> it may not be worth giving the shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Well, this was a, a a long case, but I, you know, I like to end by asking if there's anything that we've sort of come across or that you think we missed that um, you wanted to highlight or other things that you think are helpful to learn about. No, I mean, I, I'm actually curious about the, you know, I, I meant to keep, keep going back to the, um, the hypoxia, actually, in the pulmonary edema, if there was any sort of, uh, was it thought to be more infection related, or in terms of like, you know, maybe his sepsis, or what was what was the thought there? Yeah, it was hard to say, you know, I the chest imaging sort of had multifocal changes. And I think a lot of this was chalked up to sort of his septic picture when he came in and probably getting a lot of fluids and some pulmonary edema. It's interesting because I it certainly did not seem to be due to worsening uh, cardiac dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think, I guess at the end of the day is, is very fortunate. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, really tough case, um, you know, and, and um, not, not sure exactly what the right answer is, but my, my gut feeling is that this guy, if you're not going to do surgery, then he's going to have to be on on antibiotics for a while. um, As much as it breaks my heart. (laughs) <laughs> to think about that. But. Yeah. And I think uh, one of the things uh, I have learned as a fellow or have tried to get better at is knowing to ask for extra oral susceptibilities on your isolates before they leave the hospital in case you forget because I it's much harder slash impossible once they've gone home and it's been weeks and you're trying to make that decision down the road. For sure. For <laughs> so sure. Just a good reminder. Yes. Yes. Um, Great point. But yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is really fun. (laughs) So glad you joined us for another episode of the Febrile Podcast. Thanks to all our new and returning listeners. Check out our website, febrilepodcast.com for our post episode consult notes, which summarize key points and provide links to articles. In addition to the website, please connect and follow us on Twitter or Instagram so you don't miss any of the awesome graphics that accompany the podcast. Feel free also to send me topics you're interested in or awesome ID friends to feature on future shows. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.